You are listening to the Amateur Church Podcast, where we pursue excellence in ministry with the right motivation for the sake of love. I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm so thankful that you are on this disciple's journey with me as we are finishing up the book of Isaiah this week. Now, as we come to the evangelistic episode of Isaiah, we're asking the question, how can we share this text and point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've done this with each book that we've come to, and Isaiah is not any different. It actually shows us an even greater expectation of what we have to look forward uh, as we are saved. Uh, I call Isaiah 60 through 66 the glorification aspect of the kingdom of God, that as we are saved, we know that there's justification. As we grow in Christ on this earth, there's sanctification, but we look forward to a glorification that takes place in Christ. And and this really is Isaiah 60 through 66, that uh, final kingdom look. Uh, you, you see uh, a great picture of what uh, what the new heaven, the new earth, and, and I believe the reign of Christ will be like in that. But I want to take you specifically to Isaiah chapter 66 and give you two major points to to hold on to today. Isaiah 66 verse 7 as we ask how do we look forward to and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 66 verse 7 says, uh, before she travailed she brought forth. Before her pain came she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Now, these first three verses set the foundation that we should not give up on God's promises to Israel. He's reminding that what I have promised you from the beginning, and, and when we talk about the kingdom, we've got to go all the way back to Abraham when God promises that Abraham would bring forth uh, from him a, a nation that would be uh, that, that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so this is what God is saying. Am I to be doubted? Trust my word. And then continue on. Verse 10 he answers that and he says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. So what we see in this is a promise that God gives specifically to the nation of Israel, and then, of course, to the church, because we've been grafted in. In. Now, there are many today that hold to a, uh, as it's been deemed, a uh, replacement theology where the church replaces Israel. Now, I don't believe that. I believe the church is the bride of Christ and we are grafted into Israel, but still uh, there are uh, distinct 
promises and distinct verses for uh, for Israel and then the church, of course. But being grafted in, we get to experience what Israel ultimately will experience in this new kingdom. Now, there have been some fulfillments of this passage in history, but not to its complete form. As we've talked about several times, there are immediate context fulfillments uh, that point to a greater fulfillment. Isaiah, we saw that with Isaiah chapter 7 and the, the, uh, what I believe is the immediate context fulfillment of, uh, of the son that was born within about 10, uh, 10 to 12 years. Uh, he would grow up and be able to choose between right and wrong. But before that, uh, Israel would be uh, would be overthrown. Uh, we saw that, and that Jesus Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of the child born of a virgin, according to Matthew chapter one. I think Isaiah is doing the same thing here, and so the uh, the sort of immediate fulfillments would have been Cyrus's decree in 538 BC, just a few hundred years later, uh, where they're going to be able to go back into the nation, the land, and rebuild. But that ultimately doesn't hold uh, uh, eternally because we know Israel's going to go right back into uh, into captivity or at least uh, where they don't leave, but they're going to be under Roman captivity during the time of Jesus Christ. We also know that in on May the 14th, 1948, Israel, after uh, centuries of not being a recognized nation, they were uh, given national status by the world. And that is a fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment Future fulfillment comes in the eternal kingdom. We see the description of this as as we share the gospel. We can share this hope and this joy that they're called a satisfied nursing infant, where uh, an infant, if you uh, if you have an infant who is who is hungry and needs nourishment, uh, they will scream because of the the discomfort. And we're in that time, Romans chapter eight, where creation groans, Christians groan, Israel groans. And they're going to uh, be satisfied with Jesus Christ. Uh, he calls this a a uh, where they experience the peace like a river. Now, I remember growing up, and there was this old song, "I've got peace like a river." I've got peace like a river, uh, and and never really understood completely what that meant until I read this verse. And every time we sing that song, it is a reminder that God has promised tranquility and peace, much like Psalm twenty three. When we follow Christ, a child, you know, comforted by his mother is another description. Uh, bones flourishing like grass, and ultimately, at the end of uh, uh, at the end of verse fourteen, uh, knowing that God's hand will be with them against their enemies. But through this, while we see all of these great blessings of the future kingdom. The greatest blessing is the new birth, that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And with Jesus, we have a relationship with God. So do not give up on the promise to Israel. Second, don't give up on the promise that God will avenge and he will uh, he will make right what his what is wrong. Look at verse fifteen. It says, "For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire, and by his sword on all flesh. And those who those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who will eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice." will come to an end 
all together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming together, all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Listen to verse 19. It's very important. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. And then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. What we see in this is while the first few verses talked about a joy that is coming for believers, uh, Israel and the church, there is a judgment that is coming where God will avenge those who have been involved in rebellion and rejection. And this is why we are told in Romans, don't take vengeance for yourselves. Vengeance is the Lord's. And God will use this time to cause many to be slain. Uh, I believe, eschatologically or according to end times, this primarily speaks of the battle of Armageddon. Uh, I, I, I believe there's one battle at the return of Jesus Christ when he shows up with his church, with his uh, bride whom he has already raptured, and then they've the world has endured the wrath, uh, and the there are um, the 144,000 during that time that are sealed, Israelites, and at the return of Jesus, where all the nations come against Israel, Christ shows up, Revelation 19, and at the appearance, the, the brightness of his coming, at the shining of his appearance, uh, the, the evil ones are dealt with. And it's in this time that the Battle of Armageddon, there's a lot of blood, uh, uh, it's wrath that comes upon them. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we've got to realize that there is coming a day where Christ, uh, in, his, uh, in his return, brings joy but the return of Christ also brings judgment. But notice uh, some interesting things in this. It says that from Israel, he will send um, individuals to, to be witnesses uh, and, and bring individuals uh, to, uh, to, to share God's glory with them. And I believe this speaks of that time while where the uh, the 144,000 that are sealed are uh, are evangelists in a sense, or they are proclaiming God's glory and bringing back Jewish survivors who turn to God. And this is that uh, when the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has already come with the rapture, that it's during this time of the wrath of God and the return of Christ that Israel turns back to God. That's sort of how I put this together. I could be wrong, and that's fine, uh, but I, I simply see this as uh, as that uh, end time right there before the new heaven and new earth. But the most important thing, I believe, is that in this, uh, there is a promise of two destinations. Look at verse 22. For just uh, just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, uh, will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will bow 
before me, bow down before me. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Isaiah 66 closes out, meaning the book closes out with this promise of joy, but this warning of judgment, because he says there is a destiny for the saved. And that's the eternal state. Now, many have tried to make this a millennial kingdom, thousand-year literal period. I, I don't see it that way. I think when Jesus comes back, Battle of Armageddon, and the new the, that we have the inauguration of the new heaven and new earth after the great white throne judgment, I think that we are experiencing right now the reign of Christ in the church age. That's my particular viewpoint. If you disagree, that's okay. We can sit down and have a cup of coffee over it one day. Uh, but that's my viewpoint. Uh, what I do see, however, is that when this takes place, uh, the the saved are in the eternal state uh, of, of the new heaven, new earth in joy. But there is another place called Gehenna. It's the destiny of the lost. And uh, based on verse 24 and based on Revelation 19, we know that it's the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Uh, Hinnom is the uh, um, uh, Hebrew word. Gehenna is the uh, Greek word. And at the Battle of Armageddon, there will be this, uh, th this separation. The Hinnom Valley is a deep, narrow ravine that was located in Jerusalem, and it was really used as a place where the worshipers, the pagan worshipers, uh, would commit vile, wicked acts, uh, such as burning children alive as sacrifices to Moloch and to Baal. And then after the captivity of Babylon, from Babylon, when the people came back, that valley really became a city dump where garbage and anything unclean was incinerated. Even dead bodies were, were incinerated. And, and because of that, a fire kept constantly burning. And if you'll remember, Jesus even speaks of this place, uh, this Gehenna, uh, as a symbol of what the lake of fire, eternal uh, separation from God and damnation would be like, uh, eternal fire. And so... Um, on one level, it refers to uh, you know those who have died in Armageddon, but on the deeper level, it refers to the destiny of the lost, uh, the destiny of those who uh, do not trust in Jesus Christ. Notice uh, uh, Matthew chapter five forty seven says, "And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out." It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I think Christ is uh, not only giving a personal example that they can see in that day, but he's also giving a an example from prophecy in Isaiah chapter 66 that Jesus' return will bring joy for believers and judgment for non-believers. This is truth. And so what do we do? Well, we do not give up on God's promise. We do not give up on God's uh, uh, judgment, but we do not give up on our responsibility to witness. We are called to be witnesses, uh, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 was called to go. We are now called to go and take this evangelistic message, a very clear message from the very end of Isaiah chapter 66, the very last part of the book, where he says, there is a heaven and there is a hell and the only way to get to heaven is Jesus Christ. God can use you today 
to preach the gospel. And I'm so glad that he has done that in throughout church history. In fact, today is Throwback Thursday, and we have a moment in church history where uh, we look at a very particular uh, uh, time in which God used a man and other men and women uh, to uh, further an understanding of the gospel by getting the the Bible translated into English. And this guy, his name is John Wycliffe. Uh, Many have said Wycliffe. uh, But John Wycliffe uh, in 1380 oversaw the publication of the first English Bible translation. Uh, You may not be familiar with John Wycliffe. He's one of my heroes. He was a leading scholar of his time. In fact, he taught and studied at Oxford, and many people respected uh, his, uh, his intellect, his faithfulness to God, but also uh, his stand against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, his followers were known as the Lollards, and they were faithful Bible teachers led by him who embraced poverty rather than the power of the Roman Catholic Church during that time. And he, along with them, rejected the teachings, uh, some of the teachings like the on the Eucharist, like transubstantiation, uh, and they rejected the sales of indulgences. So because of his stand politically against this, uh, based on theological uh, beliefs, uh, the church banned his writings. In fact, they burned his writings, and they stripped him of his position at Oxford. Uh, in uh, Actually, in 1377, he stood uh, before the leaders uh, in London for heresy, and that, that's where they stripped him of, of his position. And many would see this as maybe a roadblock to influence. Oh, you're no longer at Oxford. You no longer have that position. You can't do much. However, it actually became the greatest open door for him because he turned his attention to translating the Bible into English. He believed that people needed the Bible in their common language so they could have that personal relationship. He even said, this is a quote from him, said, For as much as the Bible contains Christ, that is all that is necessary for salvation, it is necessary for all men, not for priests alone. So he says the Bible is necessary, not just for the religious elite, but for every person. And so he did complete the first edition of of the Bible in English, and then a second was improved and and completed uh, after his death. And that uh, that edition became known as the uh, Wycliffe or Wycliffe Bible, uh, and uh, and it is widely used even today in translations. He died on December the 31st, 1384. But what's interesting is that 31 years later, the Council of Constance had a, had a meeting, and during that meeting, they excommuted him. Already dead, but they excommuted him because of his legacy, and, uh, and, and they thought they could put a stop to it. And in 1428, just a few years later, his bones were exhumed, burned, and then his ashes were scattered on the River Swift. They hated this man. Uh, They saw him as a threat to the Roman Catholic Church and their kingdom. But God used him not only in his life, but even after his death for his legacy to build up God's kingdom. His legacy remained uh, uh, so important that he is known today uh, as the morning star of the Reformation. Though the Reformation would not take place for some 140 years, the beginning of it, uh, the the common saying and common understanding was that John Wycliffe was the morning star. He was the one that really helped begin even a century before uh, 
his translation and his faithfulness helped to encourage men like John Huss and Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all of these guys that we're going to hear of in the next few weeks um, that uh, because of his legacy. May we be faithful like him to serve Christ even in the midst of political uh, and religious threat. Why? Because Isaiah 66 is exactly correct. We are looking forward to a day where Christ is returning. Jesus is coming, judgment is coming, but joy is coming for the believer. Are you ready? I love you. I'm praying for you. Stakes in the ground.